It's good to be able to be with you again, at least virtually, this Sunday afternoon. As I came in the building this afternoon, I noticed two things. One is the building feels emptier every week. Uh, We long to be back together. We long to see each other's faces and to fellowship and worship in each other's presence. Uh, That day is going to be a happy one when we do return to this building. Uh, I also noticed that it's a lot chillier in here than it has been other weeks. And for those who know me, if I say it's chilly, uh, you can be sure it's chilly. It's cold in here. But hopefully God will give strength and warmth as we proceed now to, to open up the Word of God. So if you would turn in your Bible or your Bible app to Matthew 23. Matthew uh, ch- chapter 23. For, for those of you who don't know, uh, for a lot of good reasons, we at Risen Hope believe the Bible is the fully inspired Word of God, that it is without error in all that it teaches. And for that reason, we take the Bible very seriously and with a great amount of joy. And we tend usually to preach through books of the Bible uh, so that we can study God's Word in its context and make sure that we allow it to teach us and allow it to say to us the things that we need to hear. Rather than picking and choosing from the Bible, we preach through the Bible, through books, through chapters. A few weeks ago, as the coronavirus situation and crisis hit us, we took some weeks to preach through Psalm 90 to find comfort in the Lord our God, who is our dwelling place and has been from all generations. And then last week, our brother Alex brought a message to us to bring us back to the longer series that we've been in for a couple of years now, a series through the Gospel of Matthew. Before I read, I want to I say how grateful I am for Alex's review message last week, which was exceptionally well done. He did an outstanding job of reviewing and calling us to a right response to the King who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Alex brought us up to speed on where we are in the Gospel of Matthew and left us on the threshold of the very final days of our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. And he brought us to the threshold of the the escalation of the conflict between Jesus and his contemporaries, a conflict that led to his cruel but sin-atoning death for us. And as we're going to see this afternoon, just in the reading of the text alone and then in preaching, we come to Matthew 23, a text that is bursting with divine indignation and compassion as Jesus confronts his contemporaries, the people of his day, about their resistance to him and their rejection of him. We're going to read all of Matthew 23 at this time. I realize it's a long 
read, but it is a text of Scripture, I believe, for us to, to get the full cumulative impact of what Jesus preaches here and declares here. We need to read it in full. So I'm going to read Matthew 23. Let us hear the word of the Lord, and there will be a couple points along the way where I add a, a comment or two just to help us stay on track with what our Lord is saying. So here is God's word, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they, Jesus proceeds to say, they do three things. One, they preach but do not practice. Two, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And third, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Parenthetically, at this point, Jesus does two things to heighten the tension and to increase the severity of his rebuke and his indignation. First, he stops talking in the third person, they, and moves to first person, you, directing his words directly to the Pharisees and the leaders of his day. It makes the rebuke more personal, more pointed, more piercing to their hearts. And then he adds a series of woes or proclamations of grief and doom upon them so that a sense of profound fear, of doom, of ruin would fall on them. So we read, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land, to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? 
And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside, the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Now, as fiercely indignant as these words of our Lord are, they are mixed with compassion and pity, as is clear from how he ends his sermon. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
O Lord our God, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And would you speak to each one who listens just that word that is needed for each. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this chapter, Jesus accuses the spiritual leaders of his day of a long series of sins, all of which, I believe it's safe to say, can be placed under the heading of hypocrisy, as is clear from the frequent charge of hypocrisy that he makes throughout this chapter. In this text, the word hypocrite appears six times. Time. So, it is important for us to understand the essence of what hypocrisy is. The, the Greek word that Jesus uses here was a theatrical term in the Greek culture. It meant to play a role, and to play a role behind or under a mask. Actors back then really didn't act so much as wear masks. And so for a sad scene, they wore a sad mask. For a happy scene, a happy mask. For an angry scene, an angry mask. Which meant that mask and the person were not the same. When the, when the actor appeared, what the actor appeared to be was different from who and what the actor actually was. A contemporary example might be the face-painted clown at a circus, where there's a happy face painted onto a person who may well have a sad heart, or a sad face painted onto a person who may well have a happy heart. The external does not agree with, is not the same as the Internal. And so the, the word that is used, the Greek word, came to refer to someone who pretends to be something or someone that he or she is not. We are guilty of hypocrisy when we pretend to be what we aren't. I want to be clear here so that nobody feels guilty in the wrong place or in the wrong Way. You and I are not hypocrites just because we do something wrong. We're not hypocrites just because we sin. Sinning by itself is not necessarily hypocrisy, but pretending that we never sin is hypocrisy. Failing is not hypocrisy. But putting on a mask of perfection and infallibility is hypocrisy. A few minutes ago, Leo shared that he and Missy apparently had an argument last night. But then they proceeded to lead us in worship. Was that hypocrisy? No. It would have been hypocrisy if they pretend that they never have an argument and then lead us in worship. Or let's think of our current situation. As Christians, 
We know, don't we, that our God is sovereign, our God is on the throne, our God has this world in His hands, He's got coronavirus in His hands and under His control. We know that all things work together for good. We know all of these things. And we also know that we don't need to worry about these things. We don't need to worry about what to eat or what to wear or how to pay our Bills, we don't need to be anxious about any of these things because God's got it. God is in control. We know that we do not need to worry and that doubt and fear are things that God tells us we don't need to feel or do. But the truth is we do worry. And we do doubt. And we are fearful. But that doesn't make us hypocrites. We'd be hypocrites if we put on a face, a mask, a pretend smile, an act that said, I'm not worried about anything. An act, a mask that says, I don't have a care or a fear in the world. It is not hypocrisy to worry. It is hypocrisy to pretend that we don't ever worry that we have perfect faith. Saying that we should not lose our temper, but then losing it is not hypocrisy. Pretending that we never lose our temper is hypocrisy. Saying that we should be pure and holy, but then falling into sin is not hypocrisy, but pretending that we are so pure and so holy that we could never sin, that's hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were masters of the mask. They were the ultimate world-class pretenders. And Jesus, by calling them out for their hypocrisy, is calling them, and He is calling us, to something different and something better. He wants us to know that there should be as no disconnect between the outside of our faith and the inside of our faith. We have have seen this before in Matthew, haven't we? In Matthew 5, as Alex reminded us last week, Jesus goes into extensive teaching to show that what's on the inside is as important as what's on the outside. So it's not enough that we don't just murder somebody. We are not to be sinfully angry at someone. It's not enough that we don't commit adultery. We must not even look with lust upon a woman or a man. We are in our hearts to be pure, in our hearts to be at peace with others. In Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It is a, it is a basic of authentic biblical faith to know that with God it matters. It matters as much what we are on the inside as what we are on the outside. You see, God is not like us. We are impressed with externals. We're into looks and image and muscles and physiques and figures and clothes and cars and degrees and 
books that we've authored and amounts given and verses memorized and the right-sounding words in a time of grief or pain or loss or crisis. We're, we're, we're impressed with the outside, but God is not. When God measures a man, He says in 1 Samuel 16:7, do not look on, the, on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what? The Lord looks on the heart. In Psalm 147, 10 and 11, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. When God assesses a woman, He says in Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And again, in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very Precious. God is concerned for the inside. A number of months ago, I quoted an old-time believer who put it like this, the mark of a truly godly man is that he is who he seems to be. The mark of a truly godly man is that he is who He seems to be. In our pursuit of godliness, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you're a member of Risen Hope Church or some other congregation, in our pursuit of godliness, which, by the way, is a pursuit in which every truly born-again child of God and disciple of Jesus will engage, in our pursuit of godliness, We must cultivate our heart as much as our habits. We must cultivate our heart as much as our habits. What I want to do from Matthew 23 this week and next is to skim from the passage ten ways for us to cultivate our hearts as much as our habits. And we'll try to get through four of them here this afternoon. If we commit to these intentionally and prayerfully, we will will move forward toward authentic godliness within, and we will become more and more what we seem to be. So here 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 are the principles that Jesus gives to us by way of rebuke of the Pharisees. Principle number one is practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Notice verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so 
do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They preach but do not practice. The Pharisees sat in Moses' seat. That means they had divine authority to preach and proclaim the law of God that had been delivered to his people through Moses. But the issue with the Pharisees was that they were preaching God's law but making no real effort to obey God's law, which is hypocrisy. They pretended to honor God's law but were not obeying it in their lives, proving their faith to be phony. Authenticity practices what it preaches. Now the answer to this that I know some people do is, well, I'm just going to stop preaching. That's not the point. Don't stop talking. Don't stop proclaiming God's Word, God's truth. Jesus' point is, keep proclaiming it, but start living it. What is this? Is this, a, is this a call to perfection? That if you ever disobey God's law, that, that brands you as a hypocrite and a fraud? No, no. Authenticity is not measured in terms of perfection, but it is measured in terms of sincere direction and commitment in life. What it means is that we need to pursue a consistent and conscientious obedience to God's law in our lives. There's a word that as it uh, came through my brain and my fingers onto my notes, I realized, wow, that's not a word that we hear very often nowadays. Conscientious. A conscientious or conscientious Christian behavior and lifestyle happens when the conscience is ruled by the law of God, when the conscience submits to the authority of God's Word, when the conscience chooses to commit to a deliberate, a settled, a principled obedience to the will and to the law of God. That is what we are called to. Conscientious obedience to God's law. If we would please and honor God in our lives as Christians, if we would have a significant, powerful impact on our unbelieving children or our unbelieving neighbors, we need to make sure that we have a lifestyle that is consistent with our language. That, as so many have said that those who talk the talk are making sure to walk the walk. Authentic faith practices what we preach. Secondly, to avoid hypocrisy and to cultivate godliness inside as well as outside, Jesus says, don't have a double standard. Don't have a double standard. Look at verse 4. Speaking of the Pharisees, they, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. These hypocrites of Jesus' day had a double standard, one for themselves that was easy and light, and one for everyone else that was heavy and hard. How easy it is to be the hypocrite at this point. 
Do we impose on others, whether it's our children or fellow church members or pastors or congregations or presidents or the opposing political party or our neighbors or people we think have treated us unjustly, do we impose on them a set of expectations that we do not live by ourselves? Do we set a standard of integrity or goodness or kindness or patience or truth for others that we consistently violate in our own lives. Thinking about this, talking about it with Gaylene a little bit, um, I, I asked her uh, for an example in my own life that she has perceived of maybe this kind of double standard. It was an interesting conversation. She brought to mind the fact that historically I have been one who... Um, tends to make fun of guys who give a lot of attention to their appearance. I have tended to make fun of guys who spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. You see, where, where I come from, manliness is measured by how many holes are in your jeans or in your sneakers. And I'm not talking about manufacturer produced holes. I'm talking about those kind of holes that are produced by just doing manly things, by being rough and tough. And where I came from, you didn't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. Um, and if you did, well, that said something about your degree of manliness. Real men didn't care about how they looked. But then it hit me that I was just as image conscious as everyone else was, only in a different way. That I was no less vain. Just my standard of manliness was, well, uh, much closer to being a slob than to be anything else. Interesting, isn't it? How we judge others for standards. In this particular one, Galen reminded me um, that um, of the, she didn't say all of this, but of the 300 or so uh, masks that she has made in the last uh, few weeks, the one she gave to me, um, I registered some mild uncertainty about uh, because, well, it wasn't quite the right shade of blue. It was not manly enough. Strange, isn't it? In many cases, these inconsistencies, these double standards that we impose on others, in many cases, they're good-natured and not that serious. But when we apply critique and judgment over serious double standards, we become hypocrites. Do I, do I expect others to forgive but not forgive them? Do I, do I say, do not steal, but then cheat on my taxes? Do I condemn the greed of others and then excuse my own covetousness? Do I crucify those who are richer than me for not being generous enough, but then not give very much to those who are poorer than me? Do I condemn those on the other side of the political aisle for their various evils, but say nothing about the evils on my side of the aisle? Do I condemn Hollywood for its 
gratuitous sex and violence, but then sit and watch it with pleasure? Do I expect others to treat me with grace and without prejudice or partiality, but then turn around and not treat others with grace or play favorites in life? Do I condemn others who are more privileged than me, but then turn around and not think about the fact that I am more privileged than many? Do I fault others for getting mad at me, but then easily get provoked when they step on my toes? You see, the, the examples are endless. And Jesus wants us to know. And he lets us know by means of a stiff, severe rebuke to the Pharisees who carried this to an extreme. He lets us know that we need to check our own heart to make sure that we are not imposing heavy burdens and expectations on others and letting ourselves off the hook. Third, in order to be what we seem to be, we need to aim to do and be good, not just to look good. We need to aim to be and do good and not just look good. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries were leather cases with straps attached in which the, the Hebrew people would put Scriptures and then tie them around their forehead or on their arm. It was an external application of what Moses said to do in Deuteronomy to have God's laws as frontlets between our eyes. And these long fringes to which Jesus refers were tassels on the fringe of their garments supposedly there to remind them of God's law. The point is that these religious leaders were quite literally wearing their religion on their sleeves for human eyes, but God was not impressed. We are not to do good to be seen by others for their praise and honor. Now again, we have to be careful here that we don't get confused. Jesus is not saying do everything you do in secret where no one can see it. In fact, do you remember Matthew 5 and verse 16? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light of good works be seen. Just don't do them to be seen. I hope you see the difference. It is a, a difference of motivation. Just a few minutes ago, Alex shared with you something I want to repeat and expand on a little bit by way of announcement and update. As, as your pastors, we are very, very thankful for your recent outpouring of generosity. You're, you folks have donated somewhere around $4,500 so far to our emergency relief fund. And much of that will go to Risen Hope family members in um, obedience to Scripture that tells us to care for the household of God. And we have helped a few families already. And by the way, I, I want to take this moment to recognize that we believe the needs are going to increase as the, as the 
trickle-down effects of all that has happened in recent months really begin to hit our lives and our families. We believe in the months to come, unemployment and underemployment effects are going to sink in and the crisis is going to deepen. We want you to know, we need to plead with you, if, if you're a part of our church, um, we need to know if you have needs. Please don't, either out of pride or privacy or some unnecessary desire to put others first. That sounds strange, I know, but uh, if you have needs, um, let us know. We long to help. This, this congregation wants there to be no one with need in this time of crisis. Please let us know. The survey that was sent out a couple of days ago has a section there uh, where if you have need, please fill that in and send that to us. But as Alex said, we, we've changed the name of the emergency fund to Church and Community Assistance Fund so that anything given from here on out can be dispersed both internally and externally. We are committed in these days not only to caring for our own church family generously, but in faithfulness to God's Word, to love our neighbor, to care for our community as well. And as your pastors and deacons, we need to be able to exercise some discretion as to where these funds go. And we've decided, after exploring a few options, to take at least two, if not three Saturdays in May to be involved in a food distribution effort in our community and in Upper Darby as well. We've We've initiated a partnership with uh, Fresh Anointing uh, Christian Center and Drexel Hill Church on Garrett Road to distribute boxes of groceries uh, to people in need. Again, May 9th, May 16th, and maybe May 23rd, depending on how much is donated. Here's how it's going to work. Every donation of $7, $7 that you and I make will buy a 50-pound box of groceries. $7, 50, not 15, but 50 pound box of food uh, that will be bought from a ministry called Blessings of Hope. This ministry out in the Lancaster area has served 300 churches and organizations just in April alone. So we buy these Groceries, $7 donation gets a 50-pound box of food. They truck it to us, and we find locations, two or three pickup points where people can come and get some groceries. We are eager to be a part of this. We are eager to partner with Fresh Anointing and Drexel Hill Church. We are eager to do this. We are eager to help others in need now. Uh, if uh, you're interested in helping out, please contact Dwight and Afrika Jones. They are coordinating this with tremendous enthusiasm and joy. So contact them to see what you can do to help. But you can go on the website and, and donate to this assistance fund that we can draw from for this purpose. Now, why do I mention that here at this point in the message? Because there's an important question for us to ask. 
Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Jesus would say, don't do this to be seen by others. And what he means there is not do this in secret so that no one sees it. What he means is don't do this to be seen and honored by others. Don't do this so that people will look and think, wow, what a great church. But on the other hand, we do want people to see and know that this is being done by followers of the Lord Jesus Christ out of love for our neighbors in partnership with other gospel-preaching churches so that people in seeing it, in receiving it, in experiencing it, will glorify God for His grace in our lives. Jesus is not forbidding good works that are seen. He is forbidding good works that are done to be seen and to impress others. Let us be careful of announcing all of our good works. Let us be careful of doing and wearing and carrying and talking about anything that makes us look more holy or generous or good than we really are. Let us aim to do and to be good not just to look good. Uh, my time is up. As I try to wrap this up, I'm reminded of the psalm, Psalm 51. As you hear this message, as you hear Jesus stiff, His stern, even severe rebuke, there may well be a temptation to fall deeply into guilt and shame and to despair because who among us is guiltless? Who among us is, is as consistently authentic as we long to be? Who among us is not the hypocrite? Guilt and shame can press in. David said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You delight in truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's a prayer for you, for me, as we wrestle with guilt and sorrow and shame over the hypocrisy, the impurities, the inconsistencies of our heart. And here's a gospel for you. Here's good news. Just a couple of weeks later, just a few weeks later, after Jesus issued this severe, severe rebuke of the Pharisees and the priests of his day, we read in Acts chapter 6, just a few weeks later, that a great many priests came to faith in Christ. 
and experience the forgiveness of God. You wonder, what happened between Matthew 23 and Acts 6? What happened between this stinging rebuke of their hypocrisy and their sincere embrace of Christ as their Savior? What happened between His rebuke and His forgiveness? What happened is Calvary. What happened is the cross. What happened is that He, Jesus, proceeded to the cross willingly and voluntarily to die in the place of the Pharisees and in the place of you and me for all of our hypocrisy, for all of our sins, so that we might be washed thoroughly and made clean in heart and in spirit, so that we might be made acceptable to God even though we remain sinners. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Yes, he rebuked them and sternly and warned them of hell, but then he proceeded to bear the equivalent of hell for them on the cross so that they would not have to experience what they deserved or we deserve. This is the gospel. And if you have never, ever trusted in Christ, do so today. Do so now. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and acknowledge your sin and your need for a Savior. And He will rush to rescue you and to forgive you. And if you are a Christian, this message has stirred up a sense of an awareness of your own sin and guilt. Uh, run back to the cross. Jesus never grows tired of hearing the confession and repentance of his children, of his people. He never grows weary of saying, you are forgiven. And he will delight to issue his mercy and his grace to you. Confess, repent, return. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please, by your Spirit, do in our hearts the double work that is needed a work of conviction where needed, a work of faith where needed. Guide us, O Lord, into repentance and then through repentance into a fresh faith in Jesus and experience of your mercy. We ask for your glory. Amen. take time now to respond to that that word calling us to examine ourselves and confess and repent our sin of our sin saying we are not what we should be we are not what we should be we haven't sought what we should see glory, Lord, but looked away. We stand and our eyes are dim. Our finest works are stained with sin. And emptiness has shattered 
should be We haven't sought what we should seek We've seen your glory, Lord But looked away Our hearts are bent, our eyes are dim Our finest works are stained with sin Emptiness has shadowed all our way. Jesus Christ, shine into our night, drive our dark away till your glory fills our. Shine into our night, bind us to your cross, we find light. So receive the gospel assurance that comes in Jesus Christ, that though we often go astray, struggle with hypocrisy, he will never fail to take us back if we come to him in true repentance. Still we often go astray, chase the world, forget your grace, you have never failed to bring us back. depths of what you've done, death you've died, the victory made a way for us to know your love. Jesus Christ, shine into our shine a little bit of light into our hearts, into our lives, to 
maybe expose things that we're not sufficiently conscious of or aware. I want to encourage you this week, husbands and wives, brothers, sisters, maybe even parents and children, maybe have some conversations. Be open with each other and ask each other, are there ways in my life that you see that I do not practice what I preach or have a double standard in some other way and playing the hypocrite? I'd like to know. I want to know so that I can confess that to my Lord and my Savior and by the Spirit of God be cleansed within say, wow, how could you do that? Well, you can do that because of the gospel. You can do that because in Christ, you cannot be condemned. Nobody can make a charge stick against you because you are God's children. You have been bought with a price. You are redeemed. All your sins are paid for. That gives you the boldness to stare right into the eyes of your own sin, your own hypocrisy, and own it and confess it because you know you're forgiven. And whatever gets exposed will not be new to God, for He knew of it already. And He paid for it already in the blood of His Son. So why not this week have some humble, honest conversations with people who know you well. Ask them to shine some light in. And then run to the cross cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, on which the Prince of Glory died, and there find hope, life, and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to, to interact with each other, to be together at least one sense. Thank you for the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Thank you for the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Thank you. Thank you for those who have served us so well this afternoon to make this even happen. Above all, Lord, we thank you for you. Jesus, we thank you for you. Thank you for washing us clean. Would you please, Heavenly Father, go with us and be with us until we do meet again. Holy Spirit, would you please awaken our consciences, stir us to glad-hearted obedience and authenticity. And Lord Jesus, be to us this week, in these days, be to us our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, our brother, our friend. Be to us all that we need. This we pray, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your glory. Amen. Amen. God bless you.